Good morning. Pastor Bob is gone on vacation and well-deserved, and let's keep him and Debbie in our prayers this month. Um, if you're tuning in online, welcome, and uh, you'll be able to print off a uh, note sheet to track along with us uh, right from either the website or our Facebook page there. And if you're here in person, it should be on your chair. Today we're going to be talking about loving and living. Paul speaking to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. And um, how's everybody doing? Good. I'm good. Thanks. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. I'm using the New King James today. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, and that you aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. This passage is key for us, it's key for the church, especially um, in the society that we're living in right now with high tensions and some hostilities, some challenges. Nothing more relevant for us today. Uh, let's, let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for each person in this room and watching today. We desire to accomplish the purposes that you have for each of our lives. You're the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Your kingdom has no end. and We're your people, called by your name, destined for glory, filled with your spirit. Renew our minds today with your truth and with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 9 says, But concerning brotherly love... You have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Brotherly love is a specific type of love found in sibling relationships. And immediately I think of my brother, growing up with my brother, who's four years younger than I, and Tyler was my best friend. As kids, we had the similar experiences and challenges and joys and memories Growing up in the same household, we witnessed the same parents and uh, went on the same trips, got disciplined in the same ways, shared a bedroom, made up stories to tell each other at night. We'd laugh until our stomachs hurt. I remember one morning waking up and Tyler said, uh, he said, I don't feel very good today. I said, well, Tyler, I said... When you don't feel good, you just have to be stronger than your sickness. So I said, I bet if you do 100 push-ups right now, you'll feel better. And he got out of bed. I could tell he wasn't feeling good. Did 100 push-ups. He was like, he was dying. And I said, just keep going, man. You're going to win. You're going to beat this thing. He did it. 100 push-ups, and he threw up all over the place. <laughs> oh, man. <clears throat> Playing football in the backyard, my, brother my dad threw a pass to my brother, and I tried to intercept it. I came down on his head, and I snapped my two front teeth off in his skull. We went to ER immediately. They got one of the tooth teeth out of his head. The other one, they left there. They said it was embedded deep. They weren't being able to get it, so they just stitched his head, stapled his head back together again. To this day, he has one of my teeth in his head. <laughs> A couple years later, I double bounced him off the trampoline, the neighbor's trampoline. He came down on the edge of the trampoline and he knocked his two front teeth out. So brothers do things together. So such an affection though, such a respect, such a care, such a loyalty. You know, if someone would say something against my brother, oh man, every muscle in my body would be ready to defend my brother and he me. Paul had no need to write to the Thessalonians concerning this brotherly love because they'd already been taught by God to love one another. 
And how were they taught by God to love one another? Same way that you and I are. Three on, on your note sheet there. Number one, God gives me command to love. Throughout the Bible, there's the, there's the primary command to love God and to love one another. John 15, 12, this is my commandment, Jesus said, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus said that the entire law and the prophets, everything could be summarized down into two commands, and that would be that of loving God and loving others. Actually, in doing those two things, you automatically fulfill every law, any, any requirement that God has for the human race. Number two, God gives me an example of love. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus was the promised Messiah, hundreds of prophecies that someday, somehow, God would save and reconcile people from their sin by sending a savior to die in their place. Jesus came, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, defeated sin, death, proved he was who he said he was, fulfilled all of the prophecies. John 15, 13, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So God commanded us to love. He was the example. He was the love that saved us. But knowing those two things won't allow you to love in the supernatural way that God desires and in the way that we're talking here, the brotherly love. It's not enough because we lack the ability. Our love has limits. Human love goes so far. And that's why we need number three. God gives me power to love. The desire to love and the ability to love both are put in you, put in me, when our life is redeemed by God. He puts his own love into us. Romans 5.5 5 says, The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. We can get a really good look at this in 1 John 4, 7 through 13. 1 John 4, 7 through 13, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That shows us that God's love is something that's put in you when you're born again, when you've placed your faith in Christ. Verse 9 there, continuing, says, In this the love of God was made known toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he's given to us of his spirit. So no one has seen God in his fullness at any time, but if you've placed your faith in Jesus, God has put the spirit of Jesus into your heart. And the evidence of that is the supernatural love that exists. The Thessalonians are doing great. They're doing a great job, and that's what Paul's saying. They're loving well. And I don't know if, in your own life, if you have come to that place where you said, I'm a sinner. I need the mercies of God, the grace of God. I, I have sinned in life. And you've placed your faith in the Savior, and you've experienced that love. If you've seen people, all of a sudden, the shame or the guilt or the condemnation that they've had in themselves and the resentment and bitterness and anger or hatred that they've had for other people, all of a sudden, all of that is lifted. It's amazing. It's the spirit of Jesus inside. Amazing thing. All of a sudden, they're able to forgive people that have hurt them Deeply, and where does that type of love come from? It's not a natural human love. That is a God-placed love, and it's so cool. And, and church, we have a genuine affection and care for the spiritual well-being of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. 
It's cool that God teaches us how to love, that God puts that love in our hearts. It's so, it's so amazing, in fact, that the Apostle Paul, he didn't need to introduce the Thessalonians to a new concept or teach them from square one. He said, I have no need to write to you because God has already done it. God was doing it. He is still doing it today. Okay, so, so let's tangent for a moment because some of you are thinking, ah, I don't know... I don't know that I have that love in me or I don't feel like I'm uh, at this season in my life or this stage in my life, I don't feel very loving towards people. I'm not sure God's love is in there. And some of you maybe are, are just thinking, you're sitting here and you're like, when this sermon gets done, I'm going to go home and get nachos and I'm going to sit on the couch and I'm going to have my blankie and I'm going to watch football and I don't really care about people. I'm just being honest. I just don't love people that much. And maybe other people, they're, they're like, I don't, not only do I not have like a love in my heart for my brothers and sisters in the Lord, I actually hate so-and-so with all my guts. <laughs> and so, <clears throat> maybe you've been wrongly, um, wronged, maybe you've been wronged severely, you've been hurt badly by someone, you, you feel, you've been taken advantage of, you feel a real hatred towards somebody. And what I want to do right now on this tangent is just look at um, a couple different passages and two possibilities for your lack of love. First passage is 1 John 3, 14 through 16. If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. The first reason for why someone may not have love in their heart for another is because they have not been born again. Understand a person cannot give that which they do not possess. If you're withholding forgiveness to another person, and I'm not saying that you condone their actions, I'm not saying that you trust the offender who hurt you, but I'm saying that if you're incapable of forgiving, leaving vengeance to God and, and desiring goodwill toward them, it's evidence that you have not experienced God's forgiveness. This is one of the reasons why you might have a lack of love in your heart. Every person in this room has been born once, who has a mama, okay, um, everybody in this room has sinned before, okay, um, but only those who acknowledge their sin, only those that put their faith in God's Savior are born again, born of the Spirit, have the Spirit of Christ inside of them. First, or, I'm sorry, John 1.12 says, but to all who believed Jesus and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. Isn't that cool? If this is the reason that you're without love, the fact that you still carry guilt, shame, condemnation, I would encourage you to do what many in this room have done, and that's to admit to God your sin and to place your faith in the Savior. The word gospel actually means good news. The good news of the Bible is that God desires to redeem us. He desires to forgive us. He says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they repent. God, he loves to forgive, and he loves to change people. That's what he likes to do. And that's the good news, that he sent the promised Messiah, the Savior, Jesus, to conquer sin and death, to give eternal life through his spirit. You put your faith in Jesus, that he died for your sins, that he rose again, and God puts his spirit inside of you. That's called born again. You're born twice. Born of the flesh, now born of the spirit. And that spirit will love people unconditionally. Amen. That spirit inside you. The second reason... Why someone may not have a love in their heart for another is because it is dormant. Say dormant. dormant. It's asleep. 
It's stagnant. It's inactive. And um, I don't know if you've ever fallen asleep on the job or somewhere where you were not supposed to fall asleep or in a position that was not conducive to sleeping. Um, here's, here's an example. <clears throat> He's tuckered out, man. He worked hard. Okay, here's another one. You guys should try that one when you get home. <laughs> the church of Ephesus is written about in Revelation. And the church of Ephesus was doing a lot of great things, but God said to them, he says, you've left your first love. Your love is dormant. It's fallen asleep. It's, it's dropped from the highest priority to something peripheral and ignored almost. The church of Ephesus was doing good works. They were laboring with patience. They did not compromise with those who are evil. They identified false prophets. They persevered. They had patience. They were laboring for the name of Jesus. They hadn't become weary, but they'd lost sight of the most important. And maybe that's the reason why you or I may not have a love in our heart for another brother or sister is because we are busy and distracted and we're doing our duty, but the relationship is not primary. And there's COVID-19 and there's political unrest and maybe our love has grown cold or it's dried up a little bit. It fizzles out, it dries. We go dead on the inside and there's a lack of intimacy with God. We need intimacy with God. We have to have intimacy with God because he is our fuel. Waiting on the Lord, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will rise up with wings as eagles. They will walk and not be weary, run and not faint. Be still before the Lord. Be still and know that I'm time and intentionality to allow our minds and our spirits to be renewed by God who created us. So, if it's the second reason, then be encouraged that the love of Christ is in you. It's just buried deep somewhere. It's down there. It needs to be awakened and refreshed and activated. You're at your computer, and you're trying to go to a website, and the little icons start spinning, and nothing's going on. And you got to hit the refresh button. You click the refresh button. Ah, now we're back in business, and we're to where we want to go. I think of a contractor who goes to Menards and he gets this specific tool that he needs and he adds it to his tool belt and it's going to allow him to be much more productive on the job and get certain things done that were impossible prior to him purchasing that item. And so he's going about his work and he's building, doing fix-ups or building and all of a sudden he comes to a spot where he could really utilize that tool but he's actually forgotten that he bought it. And it's hanging on his tool belt, and he's trying to maneuver and leverage and try to fix this problem. Nothing's going right. He can't do it. And if he would just remember, if he'd look down and say, oh, I actually have the tool to accomplish this task. I just forgot about it. And some of us, that's the way we are. We have the love of Christ. It's down. It needs to be recognized. And we need to allow it to come out because we're living in the flesh and not by the spirit. We need to defer and surrender again. You know, as a Christian, sometimes we say, God, you're my savior, Jesus. You're my Lord. You took my guilt, my shame. You have a plan and purpose for my life. And, and then we're like, we give all that to him. And then we start like taking back a whole bunch of responsibility and burden and trying to live life and fix stuff. And we're like, what am I? I need to surrender this back to Jesus and allow him to put peace in my heart and strength in my body and perspective in my mind because I'm a nut house. My wisdom is pretty stupid. So, um, so if you're this second type, the reason why you may not have love in your heart for so-and-so, and you actually say, uh, um, when you say, I hate so-and-so with all my guts, it's not actually true. You're annoyed, you're hurt, you're frustrated, maybe you're angry, sure, but you actually just hate them with your outer guts. Your inner guts loves them. Your heart, the spirit of Christ in you, doesn't hate them. 
The Spirit of Christ inside of you actually really does desire um, restoration for that person. It doesn't agree with your surface feelings. The Spirit of God in you desires for the other person restoration, healing, correction, possibly, but not destruction, ultimately, not destruction. What is the reason for the lack of love in your heart for other believers? Here's a good test. Um, think beyond your initial feelings when I ask the question, do you hate anybody? Do you hate anybody? And it was so neat because a friend who was, I was working on this sermon with during the week, a close friend of mine, we're, we're looking up passages and dialoguing, and he said, Travis, do you hate anybody? And I could answer him very quickly, no, I don't hate anybody. There's certain people I'm definitely frustrated, frustrated by, people that I want to see corrected, but I want them to be corrected because I want them to be redeemed, and, and, and God has a plan and purpose for their life, and I'd love to see them be the person that God desires them to be. That would be awesome. And so... I desire people to be corrected, to learn their lesson, to repent, but not be destroyed. We as Christians, with Jesus in us, we're like God in that we do not delight in the death of the wicked, but rather desire that all would repent, all would be shown mercy. And here's an observation. You know, we might not realize it, but it is there. When you have a proper view of God, think, think about a time when you have a proper view of God, and you're recognizing his grace in your life, you're spending time with him, you will notice at that same time that there's a love emerging in your heart for other people. Let's go to verse 10. It says, and indeed you do so. Say, indeed you do so. See if you can say it faster. It's kind of fun to say. Indeed you do so. Toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Indeed you do so. Paul says, you're fulfilling your assignment, Thessalonians. Man, you're doing well. It's evidenced in, in that all the brethren in Macedonia are impacted. You're allowing God to love through you. It says, uh, that verse says, toward all the brethren, that's other believers, other believers in Jesus. They are your spiritual brothers and sisters, and that relationship is closer than biological. It's a spiritual reality that is deeper and closer than biology. Jesus was teaching in a packed house in Matthew chapter 12, and, um, and he's teaching. The house is packed. His mother and brothers come, and they can't even get into the house. It's so full. And, and someone brings a message to Jesus. says, your mom's waiting outside. She, she wants you to come out there. And he says this in uh, Matthew 12, 50. He says, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That relationship, those relationships, were superior to biology in Christ's eyes. We're, close, we're brothers and sisters. If your faith is in Christ and your sins have been forgiven, we have so much in common. Um, now, in a general sense, we are to love everybody, right? Believers, unbelievers, in one general sense, we want all to know God, we want everybody to be saved. However, we're to love the brethren in a special preferential sense of Galatians 6.10. It says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are the household of faith. Why is that? I mean, they're already saved, right? We can forget about them. Let's, we need to get out there and win the lost, right? Why is that? We have limited time, we have limited energy on earth. And we are to prioritize the health of our brothers and sisters and their faith, nourishing, nurturing, encouraging, supporting them. And in doing this, it's actually an appeal to the outside world. When they see that community of believers 
loving one another in such a way. Jesus said that, John 13, 35 says, by this will all know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Interesting. A community of believers is an example and an appeal to the outside world. It is the best community and government in which to live. We have the greatest benefits and privilege to live within it and to prioritize it. It's so pure and so noble and so true. Supernatural love. John 17, let's look at this. John 17, 21 through 23, Jesus prayed the following concerning us, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us and that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. When Jesus had died, he'd risen from the dead and he was speaking to the people, to his disciples, he, he took Peter aside and he, his, his primary job and mission for Peter going forward was not to be a missionary. It wasn't evangelism, although he already had told all of his disciples, go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples. He, actually, when he said that, he said, start in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the ends of the world, ends of the earth. And when he talked to Peter, he said this. He said, um, he was to feed my sheep. He said, Peter, feed my sheep. Nurture and strengthen the faith of believers, of my church, my people. The church is to operate from a position of health and wellness, and it's much more effective when we are strong. It's why we are to prioritize being with one another, strengthen and nurture one another, help one another, hold each one accountable, challenge one another, worship God together, study his word, rejoice with one another, sorrow with one another, if one of us begins to wander off or detach themselves, we should pursue them. Leave the 99 to go after the one sheep who's lost. It's important for the flock to stay together and to be healthy. And don't misunderstand, I am in no way um, suggesting the mentality of us four and no more. You know, we have a private club and we're closed off. We are to reach the world with the light of Christ. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, witness, make disciples, but we are not to skip steps in the process, not to negate the family of God, not to minimize the importance of devotion, not to miss the fellowship that precedes evangelism, the fellowship that makes evangelism possible. Here's a, here's a picture you get on a plane, and the first thing they tell you is your oxygen mass. When all of a sudden we're without oxygen, don't go scrambling around trying to help everybody with their oxygen mass, because you're going to last about three seconds, and you're not going to help anybody. Get your oxygen mask on first, and that will allow you to help other people next to you have oxygen. We have too many oxygen-deficient people trying to give oxygen to others. Malnutrition to people trying to feed the masses. First John three seventeen through nineteen. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister, another believer, in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let us not merely say we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth. So we will be confident when we stand before God. So back to verse uh, 10. Indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. Uh, all of Macedonia. Here's Macedonia. It's the northern portion of modern Greece, way up in the left-hand corner. And there's Thessalonica. Now it's called Thessaloniki. 
Thessalon, no, Thessalon, yeah, Thessaloniki. Um, and so far away from Jerusalem, you don't even see Jerusalem on the map, it's a little further down than Tyre. But all of Macedonia, so people in Berea, Philippi, that region, all the believers up there. And wouldn't that be cool about Life Church? We love the brethren, all who are in South Central Wisconsin. Increase more and more. What if the people around South Central Wisconsin, they continually hear about how people are taking care of one another in the body of Christ? How Christians take care of one another so sacrificially and with such a genuine and supernatural love. Just amazing. My church friends are watching my kids today. Your church friends are watching your children today? Yeah, for free. What? My church friends uh, know that I'm going through a diff- uh, they, they know that I'm going through a difficult time. They went through something similar to me. Um, my church friends brought us a meal this evening. Your colleagues are like, man, that group of people really cares for one another. That's the type of community I'd love to be a part of. They love each other without strings attached, without casting judgment. They can be open with their sins, and they're not condemned. We can, we can voice our struggles. I have addictions in this manner or that manner. And it's okay, we have a Savior. And we're working to support one another to grow in the Lord. Guests can see and they can feel the love and the energy of Christ's spirit. When they walk in the doors, they can sense an energy. And they might not know it's the spirit of Christ. But they can tell that there's something cool going on. The energy is the spirit of Christ. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Paul doesn't need to write to them about loving one another. So why is he mentioning it at all? He's affirming to the Thessalonian church that they're doing well, they're doing the right thing, but more than affirming, he's compelling them to double down. He says, this is the main thing. Put all your eggs in that basket right there. Double down on loving God and loving one another. That's not, that's not the side, uh, side course, that's the main course. It's the primary thing. Loving God and others is the most important work. We don't check the love box at the beginning of the week so we can get back to focusing on our business because loving people is our business. We don't do our good deeds so that we can then carry on with whatever we have going on. Uh, Same way, we don't go to church so I can check off I did my spiritual duty for the week. You know, we go to grow in our faith, to encourage others in their faith. Same with Bible reading, prayer, worship. We don't love people because we're trying to appease God. No. There's nothing better in all the world than to know the love of God and to see other people experience the love of God. Paul says, increase more and more. That's a comparative adverb, more and more, that um, refers to what is better as compared to what is good. Involves prioritizing or ranking to elevate the better over the good. The highest priority, to love God and love one another. And this is possible to do because the love of Christ in us is limitless. It's abounding. It's ever-increasing. So our natural love falls short because we get tired. Um, You know, we're supposed to take care of our bodies. We need to get our proper rest. We need to eat decently. And, And when we don't do those things, we start getting angry or hangry. Um, And so, and our flesh can kind of grow stronger and stronger. But the spirit of Christ is able to continually love through us in abounding and supernatural ways. So Paul says, um, learn to allow it, you know, more and more, double down. You guys look different than the world. You're living for something bigger than yourselves, something bigger than safety or stability or comfort or position or power. You're making an eternal difference in the world and more of that love is what we need. More people filled with God's love, more people experiencing the love of God. Life Church, let's double down on that. You know? Let's let the love of Jesus flow through us like a mighty river.
you know. In your notes, verse 11, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Aspire, have as your ambition to lead a quiet life. Exude great focused energy, discipline, self-control toward the end of living a quiet life, leading a quiet life. Quiet life, what is that? Ceasing from altercations, to say nothing, to hold one's peace, to rest. It's the opposite of boastful, loud, assuming, self-promoting, overreaching, overstepping, not thinking too highly of ourselves or our own opinions. Number one in your notes there is less spotlight. Romans 12.3, Paul writing to the Romans, he says, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Aspire to live a quiet life. I'm going to say that verse next time. So we go on vacation And I have six little voices within, not social distancing, within like two feet of my ears in the back seat. We're going to memorize this first next time. (laughs) Paul's telling them toward one another, but expanded. There's broader application here. It's scriptural. It's true for within the church, but it's also true with our interactions of society. A Christian should not be the person yelling at the return desk. Should not be the one that's rude to the waiter or the hostess. Should not be the house on the block that is strifeful, unruly, disorderly, or overpowering. I I so appreciated Peter Hansen um, when I first went to college as an 18-year-old in Minneapolis. And and Peter Hansen was from Montana. And we'd be hanging out with the guys and doing things. And I was just caught... I was amazed at his contentment at not having to be the center of attention. He didn't have to be running things. He didn't have to, to, um, he didn't care that he was seen as wise or witty or funny or important or powerful. Or He just, he was so content and at ease with himself and life being in the shadows or second chair. I thought, man, that is cool. Like, some of us, we don't feel comfortable unless we're in the spotlight or we're controlling things. And Paul's saying, make it your endeavor to lead a quiet life. Not self-promotion, not entitlement mentality. It goes on, to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business. Mind your own beeswax, sex lax. I have no idea what that means. But in grade school, that was the thing to say. Like, if somebody comes into your group, say, any of your beeswax, sex slacks. Yeah. That doesn't even make sense. Tend to your own matters, your own property, your own family. Meddle not in the affairs of others. To anything that pertains to another. Don't be a gossip, a tale bearer, troublemaker, nag criticizer. For some of us, the most spiritual thing that we can do is to buy a roll of duct tape and put it on our mouths. Right? We think we have God's mouth for the world, right? We should speak into every person's life. Mind your own business. We change society and culture not by being rude as Christians. We change it not by being rude, not through rioting, not through chaos, but we lead quiet lives, we mind our own business, we speak at the right time in the right way, we lead by example. 1 Peter 2 and and chapters 3, they give great insight on that. In fact, in 1 Timothy 2.2, we're supposed to pray for those who are in authority, whoever's in authority, we're supposed to pray for them, that we might live quiet and peaceable lives. 
So we should desire less spotlight and we should, number two, be more responsible. Verse 11 continues, it says, work with your own hands. Work with your own hands. It's the opposite of inactivity or idleness. Take responsibility for your own care and do so with diligence and integrity. Do not use people. Do not take on an entitlement mentality. Do not play the victim. Do not become a user. Make it your endeavor to build, to make your own living with your own money, with your own sweat. Don't be a mooch. Don't be lazy. Don't be a dreamer without awaking and doing. Don't be an analyst without being an action taker. Don't be a starter without being a finisher. So help us, God. Help us, Lord. And things happen. And we should help others, and we should accept help, you know, when, when it's needed. But the message is to be a responsible person. The worst examples of Christianity are hypocrites, especially when it comes to work ethic and attitude. As a church, we're actually supposed to withdraw from other believers who are disorderly and busybodies. You say, What? We just talked about brotherly love and, and this love that doesn't end. And, and then Paul's saying right here that and you're telling us that we should withdraw from other believers? In a sense. And it's, it tells us 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15. But we command you, brothers, command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anybody's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, that if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through the Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And so the goal isn't that we don't treat them as an enemy. We confront them. And we encourage them to work and to be diligent, to be responsible in the ways that they are able to be. Working in the Bible is always considered godly. Working is godly in the Bible, where idleness is considered ungodly. Proverbs 90, 17, uh, this one's not on the screen, read it. Let the beauty, the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Proverbs 16, 3, commit your work unto the Lord and he will establish your thoughts. Note it doesn't say commit your idleness to the Lord. Commit your laziness to the Lord. Commit your work to the Lord, and he will establish your thoughts. If you find it hard to work, God knows. You know? Some of us stare and wonder at the energy levels and the discipline of others. Um, And many people have genuine limitations. Bodily, ability, injury, opportunity, age. And so we're not addressing that, but rather addressing those who think they have limitations but could work and should work, should be more responsible. Some of us need to admit to God and to ourselves that we're lazy and we need to stop giving excuses. We need to repent. We need to say, God, I'm sorry. I know I am. I know I'm lazy. Help me. God will help you. God will help you. He will help us. Look to improve and start somewhere. Um, humble ourselves. You know, what can we do? And, 
And maybe there's physical, those who are physically challenged, maybe there's mental work that you can do. Those who are mentally challenged, maybe there's some physical work that we can do. Both physically and mentally challenged, maybe there's some mindless tasks that do not require much physicality or mobility. Tasks that would still make a huge difference to others, to the church, to society. It's cool um, that we have a helps department at Life Church whose goal is to help uh, people who are in need, short-term needs, and to help them uh, gain traction, help them be able to support and have um, um, money for themselves, for their families, to be responsible to grow in that aspect. I encourage you to reach out to the helps department. If you or someone you know that could just use help, you want to work, you don't know what's available or where, um, they would be a great help. Becoming a good worker is a growth process. It's learned, uh, discipline. Energy <clears throat> grows, stamina increases, calluses can build, endurance takes training, skills can improve, train the body to work. Man, I, I, my first job, real job, other than mowing lawns and, and other shoveling snow, was the Royal Fork Buffet in Rapid City, South Dakota. And I got the job at 14 years of age. I remember, I remember uh, one of the questions at the interview, my boss was Linda. Linda. She says, what do you think about work? Was one of the questions in the interview. I said, work doesn't scare me. That's what I said. And I think she liked that. I think she liked that answer. Man, I was all talk. I was all talk. First day of busboy, being a busboy, and carrying the tub around, filling up all the plates, and at, at this buffet place, there's plates, believe you me. Carrying and wiping over and trying to wipe all the benches off, and this is even before COVID disinfectant, and now it takes twice as long, but you wipe the thing a little bit and the table, and oh my word, I was supposed to work a four-hour shift, but it had been like six hours, and she, I still hadn't had my break yet. And, and I looked at my watch, it hadn't been an hour. It was one hour. My back was killing me. I thought I was going to die. I thought, how? Oh, I don't know. I'm not going to make it today. Over time, my back must have got a little stronger. I could bust boy for four, my four-hour shift. And uh, the back got stronger over time. Oh, that was the, I was thrown to the fire. <laughs> That you may aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. As we commanded you. So this, this isn't some suggestion. Guys, this is important. This is a command as, as, a, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ. One of your purposes on earth is to have fulfilling work, to accomplish certain things in certain manners, and to work with your hands. Verse 12, that you may walk properly, Toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. The way you conduct yourself and your work ethic affects your surroundings and your culture and your society. It has direct impacts on your life and your family and other people. Live in such a way that even your enemies will have nothing to accuse you of. When they see your quiet life, your peaceable manner, your hard work, your honesty, your integrity, they'll be ashamed when they try to bring something up. And this happened, right? You think of people in the Bible, those of you that, that know some of these characters, Daniel, Jesus, Paul, these are people they could not find anything wrong with, right? They couldn't, they could search and, and look and look, they couldn't find anything wrong with and so they'd have to rely on lying or trying to manipulate the courts, and it usually backfired in some, some instance. Walk properly toward those who are outside, and we close with this. On your sheet, there's a couple lines there. There's consequences, you know? Um, it's just natural byproducts of, of doing this or obeying this or not obeying this. Positive consequences, you might think of some others, but you're a great witness to the world. Your hard work produces profit. Um, you're self-sustaining by God's grace. 
satisfaction of accomplishment and purpose and fulfillment. It helps the church be effective. You're helping society. Negative consequences if you're not doing so, not living a quiet life, not minding your own business, not working with your own hands. Um, it hurts your witness. It hurts the church. It hurts people's perception of who Jesus is, what God is like. It hurts your own reputation. It hurts your future. It hurts the church. It abuses resources and it monopolizes time and energy. And so we have to ask God to help us. <clears throat> Loving and living. Paul writing to the Thessalonians, recognizing the brotherly love that is in them, placed there by God, and saying, double down on that. That is awesome. And in your living, be quiet. Seek, aspire to lead a quiet life. Work hard. And you'll have a great... Um, Influence on the outside world. And you'll have the blessing of God in your life in special ways. What is the Spirit of God saying to you today? Lord, I thank you for your word. It's good, God. All your ways are good. Every single way that you have, every instruction is great. Your kingdom, Lord, is awesome. So much better than the kingdoms of this world. So much more lovely. We thank you for your goodness. Today, we thank you for your supernatural love. We thank you for your desires, your plans and purposes. Lord, we ask you to help us um, in politically hostile times and uh, culturally um, hostile, um, bickering, sides, Lord, you'd help us to represent your kingdom in the right ways, Lord. Give us great self-control, great confidence in your Holy Spirit and in your timing. God, we know all the days are in your hands, Lord. You know every day. You know what's going to happen next week. You're in charge of the times and seasons and the ages. We entrust ourselves to you this morning. In Jesus' good name, amen.